Welcome to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. It's time to make mental health a normal conversation with your host, Shane Kelton. All right, welcome to another podcast, Power, Strength and Vulnerability. I'm your host, Shane Kelton, and today I've got uh, one of the all-time great people, Ryan Hassan, with me from the Centre for Healing. Welcome, Ryan. Shane, how are you doing, mate? All right, how are you? I'm a little bit, uh, I'm great. I'm a little bit, you know, I just had a bit of a teary, which um, yeah, I'm, sure we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about. You did have a little bit of a teary. Um, we just went through my first practice session. So when I say practice session, we'll give the, give the audience a bit of a rundown. So I did some root cause therapy with you through December uh, last year um, and it helped me immensely. Um, and I've since taken on the studies. So I'm doing the study with you and I'm up to the practice session. So I just did my first practice session. Um, let's let's tell the audience how I went. You did very <laughs> well. Very, okay, very that, well. Yeah, that's, I'll, that's I'll, give you, I'll give you the, uh, what do I call it? The sandwich where it's compliment, critique, compliment. Yeah. <laughs> right, but, I'll, um, I'll take the sandwich. Um, no, but it's great because, you know, I obviously went through a similar thing and, you know, it was only a few years ago that I um, trained up and, you know, got certified and that kind of thing. So I know what it's like uh, and training, doing practice sessions, you know, and um, especially on someone who's like, you know, qualified and teaches that it, it could be a bit daunting, um, yeah. but they're often the best ones, you know, and um, you did great. You warmed into the process. Yeah. So there was, you know, the, the first minute or two, there was a couple of perfectly normal, couple of uh, stumbling over words. And the, and the number one thing that everyone does is you start off too fast. So the, um, as in speaking too quickly um, and that kind of thing. Um, but like after those first couple of minutes, all of a sudden you relaxed, which means uh, you don't go as fast. And then um, you really warmed into the task. It's like once you know that everything's going okay and because we have all these weird irrational fears that like, you know, it's just going to be stupid or it's not going to work or they're going to think I'm an idiot and, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. But once you're sort of like, oh, shit, this is actually working and he's going into something meaningful, um, yeah. then that, that puts a lot of those fears aside. So I could really feel after those first couple of minutes that you relaxed and then um, uh, you, you were then trusting yourself as well as trusting the process. Yeah, and I, I definitely had those fears. And I, I, I had a fear I said to you before, we'll uh, talk about this on the podcast first up. Um, and there was a bit of a fear that I was going to get a barrage. And there wasn't really, but um, <laughs> and this still is that fear, that, oh, no, um, this is going to go to the public, how bad I am. But um, I actually, I, just, I did, I felt, that, I felt that myself. I was very stumbly at the start, very fast. Um got more confident as I went in and it was the moment when you actually started crying. Um, so we'll put it out there. You had a few tears yes. um, that I actually went, Oh wait, I'm actually doing this. <laughs> it's actually real. Um, it didn't feel fake or anything after that. And uh, yeah, just, it just sort of flowed from there for me. Um, I started listening more like at the start it was, and I've done a bit of acting before and they, they always say, don't worry about your lines. Listen and then respond, and that's what I found I did um, after the tears started coming. I started responding to what you were doing or saying instead of reading a script, which yeah, I was and that's, doing. 
And that's, yeah, but that's, that's perfect because all of a sudden you can come more into the moment and deal with the situation that's in front of you instead of, and like this is the same, like you said, in conversation, worrying about just what's coming next and what you're going to say because it's all about um, with, you know, therapy. It's like what that person needs in the moment um, yeah. is most important. So, yeah, no, you did, you did very, very, yeah, very well. Like I said, it's just it's like the, the the start thing. Look, it always happens. It like happens when we are public speaking or we're we're you know in a bit of an anxious state. We will talk extremely fast, and we just mm. have to be conscious of that. Like I know, I'm a fast talker normally, so then I knew like when years ago when I started public speaking, I would record and watch myself back. I'm like, whoa, like I'm speaking real fast, but it doesn't feel fast when you're doing it. It's yeah, because your body's yeah. in such an excited state; it just comes out so fast. So I know for me, if I focus on speaking really slow, like especially doing the root cause therapy or that kind of thing or public speaking, if I feel like I'm talking way too slow, it's actually about right. <laughs> it's just yeah, that I, yeah. I just know that my perception skewed and I know by watching it back, I'm like, man, I thought I was talking like so slow, but watching back, it was kind of a normal pace. So I guess the, the first question the audience might be asking is, what the f- is root cause therapy? Therapy. <laughs> so you're you're the man. I mean, you're the one half of a team um, that is running a very successful um, business through this. What is it? Look, there's many different modalities out there for helping people, you know, get past whether it's people suffering from depression or anxiety or addictions or people who are highly stressed or people that are struggling to find meaning or purpose in their life. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that people try and tackle these things. And um, I was lucky enough to stumble upon this. Um, Melissa, my partner, was doing this as a sole trader uh, before I came along. And um, when I walked into her office, which was coming up five years ago, I was a drug addict. I was a very heavy ice and GHB drug addict, um, using every day, uh, overdosing every second day, um, in jail, uh, arrested a couple of times, like really, really deep in the, in, in the scene. I was dealing drugs to support my habit, all of that kind of stuff. And, um, I walked into her office never having done any therapy or counseling or anything before. So I didn't have a reference point of what I just thought, like if you were going to talk to someone about your stuff, you were talking to someone about your stuff and it was the same <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, across yeah. the board, which is so untrue. Like even it's even people say to me, they're like, oh, I went to see a psychologist and that didn't work. Well, psychology is one field, but then also there's so many different people in psychology and have their own method of going about it. So even the one modality, um, you should never just write off because you had one experience with a psychologist that didn't work. Um, so for me, I walked into her office, you know, having these big issues, obviously with drug addiction, but also with anxiety. I'd struggled with anxiety. From when I was a kid, uh, looking back on it, probably around grade three or four, um, that probably started. Uh, I never had a word for it back then, so I never, back then I would never have gone, oh, I'm an anxious kid. I just wouldn't have even um, recognized it in myself. I just thought what I was going through was normal, but um, definitely struggled with that for a long time. So um, we jumped into this type of therapy, this modality. It took me back to a lot of memories from my childhood, a lot of this stuff that I would look back on and go, oh, that wasn't a – you know, that wasn't a big deal, but 
really jumping back and embodying that younger version of me in these certain events, it really was a big deal. Well, let's let's talk about what we just did then, right? We just uh, worked on a belief that I had, which is life is a struggle. Um, a lot of people have this belief. It's like if I've got to get anywhere in life, I have to struggle through it. Yeah, and because we've struggled through things in the past, we think that we have to struggle in the future when it's not the case. It just simply comes from a, a belief system and a, yeah. a belief system gets created in a single event. So an event happens to us at some point in our life, which has a strong uh, emotional attachment to it. And then we decide in that moment, A, B or C, whatever it is. I mean, it could be deciding that we're not worthy as a human being or that we're not good enough or that we don't trust women or we don't trust men or whatever. We need approval, whatever it is. Um, we make these big sweeping decisions about what the world's like and how we have to act in it. Um, so for me, the belief that life is a struggle, we just went back to an event when I was seven years old when we were, my family was moving into a new house and it was like on, on my actual birthday. And there'd been like a history of stuff happening on my birthday when I was a kid so that we didn't get to actually celebrate it on the day. And, um, being seven, like everything's about us. Like I'm not too concerned about yeah. <laughs> what, about why things happened. Um, I just saw this as uh, another day where I didn't get to celebrate my birthday, and you know the family were were joking about, oh, it's happening again to you, blah blah blah. Um, but as we just found out then. I was joking along with them on the surface, but deep down I was really sad and I was angry. And I actually, as we were working through that emotion, I realized that uh, I felt like a complete joke to my family. So I keep having this dialogue going, I'm not a joke, I'm not a fucking joke, you know, and I was really angry, but um, wasn't able to express that in the moment. So, um, you know, we were able to work through that. Once you start to work with uh, stuck emotions around an event, because you can imagine that I had sadness and anger attached to that event as a seven-year-old and um, those same emotions will keep presenting themselves today when I feel like life's a struggle unless I go back and deal with them. So that was the beauty of dealing with them um, was was realizing that I thought I was a joke. So the first step's awareness, but then actually letting go of that stuff, which was really good. And I actually felt really grateful afterwards, which was where I had a few more tears. So I was like tears of sadness and anger, but then tears of gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Because once you yeah. remove the emotion from a memory, you can start to see things very uh, much more clearer. Because it's like uh, an emotion is like a, a fog or a cloud over the event, and all I can see is the um, all I can see is filtered through that sadness and anger. So once that was removed, I could see that hey, mum and dad, like we joked about in the session. I'm like, yeah. I imagine mum and dad sitting down with a conveyancer and saying, look, I don't care what it costs, just make sure this happens on Ryan's birthday. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it seems ridiculous. So much of this stuff seems ridiculous when you look back on it, but it still controls so much of our life. That's how fickle our mind is it's really funny and um and then sort of was able to look at that house that we were moving into which i spent between the ages of seven and 18 and um that was a really beautiful place to spend my childhood and, and grow up in and play cricket in the front yard footy in the front yard and hang out with all the friends in the street and um it was uh yeah so that's so that's that that's you know how how a session should go it's moving from these negative emotions that maybe you weren't aware were even there working through them and now moving from a state of anger and sadness to gratitude. So now, um, you know, and we'll, we'll retest that, but it feels like to me that belief's been shifted about feeling like life's a struggle. So there's so many ways I could 
get this conversation <laughs> to go right now. It's just completely open. But I guess I'll start with prior to what you know now, what what was it like for you before the drugs came through? Like what was your childhood like? From it, basically, from your perspective, but also an outsider's perspective. I mean, how was it seen, and how was it portrayed, which leads up to the drugs? Yeah, so my childhood was great, um, but it also had its challenges. Um, what happens? One thing I have found um, is that a lot of people idealise their childhood. So a lot of people will say, look, I haven't been sexually abused or physically abused. I didn't have, um, you know, my parents split up at a young age and that kind of thing. Um, everything went so, – so because of that, everything went perfect in my childhood. Um, that's not yeah. the case. Um, we're, we're, part of the human condition is going through certain traumas and emotional challenges, and it doesn't matter how hard our parents try. And I know now I'm, I'm a new, new father right now. I've got a boy who's nearly one and a half, and – it's kind of a curse knowing what I know now because I'm trying to make sure I don't <laughs> fuck him up too much. But the truth <laughs> is we, we, we will all fuck up our kids to a certain degree and there's, there's always going to be yeah. stuff that we need to, to work through. Um, so from an outsider's perspective, from, man, childhood, adolescence to growing up and being an adult, um, everyone saw me as just being absolutely fine, no issues at all. Yeah. Um, I would – I had the deep-seated, one of the things that I did have to work through was a belief that I can't be vulnerable in front of people. So when we have a belief, and this is one that a lot of men carry, that I can't be vulnerable, I'll never kind of take off this mask. So if I've got this mask that says, I'm happy, I'm fine, I'm a you know go-getting person, everyone likes me, all of that, I won't take that off even if deep down I'm not feeling that way inside. So I never truly would open up to someone about how I was feeling. So my... I suppose childhood and adolescence and into adulthood was a a story of I suppose suppressing and pushing down a lot of these negative feelings that I was having, and you know I even in my mid twenties or so started getting into personal development and started reading books and I started doing all the the positive thinking and affirmations and yeah. I've got nothing against that stuff if you're trying to improve it, but if there's deep-seated emotional issues going on, positive thinking is not going to help. It's just going to uh, – it, it's like I think Tony Robbins says it. You go out in your garden and it's full of weeds and you're like, there's no weeds, there's no weeds, there's no weeds, everything's fine. There's fucking weeds in your garden. You yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and, it's, uh, just, it's, it's, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a broken leg, really. It's just going to temporarily fix the cut or make you feel better, and then, but it's, it's there. It's still there. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, that's so that was an issue from the outsiders looking in. Everything was fine. That's when people found out I'd become a drug addict. It was like um, everyone was so shocked. You know, it wasn't shocking to yeah. me at me at all because <laughs> I knew what was yeah, happening yeah. In, in, in my heart. But um, it was a, a shock to a lot of people because all they saw was someone who was doing so well in life and was, you know, someone to be kind of looked up to. Like I was a person people would come to for advice and that kind of thing. But, and I liked giving advice because if I was, if I, this is, just so prevalent for people. If I was trying to help enough people, then I didn't have to focus on my own problems. And I would always say to myself, I'll help everyone. And they'd say, how are you? And I'm like, yeah, fantastic. I'm fine. <laughs> right. And then I think oh, I'll deal with my stuff later. And then later would come when I was by myself and I would be like, oh God, this is very uncomfortable. Let me reach for alcohol or drugs or something to make being in my own body more comfortable. Because like I said before, I mean, that started around grade three or four. I started getting these 
feelings of anxiety, like socially, like going to parties. Sport was a massive one. I loved playing cricket and footy and I quit them because I was I would get so massively anxious. Um, yep. You know, I, I quit football halfway through a season and I was captain of the team um, because I just I couldn't handle the pressure of um, going to play. And so, and that's such a hard thing to resolve, especially when you're young, because you've got these two conflicting parts. One loves playing footy or cricket or whatever it is. And the other parts crippled by these feelings of anxiety about going to have to play. And that's very, very hard to resolve. And so um, this anxiety turned into like a, I suppose, a constant feeling of dread. So like always thinking that something was going to jump out and attack me, um, never really feeling comfortable uh, in my own body, um, which is so tough, you know, and, and then alcohol came along as a teenager. I started drinking and I'm like, Hey, that anxiety is going away while I drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like that. And then even though, you know, when I stop and then the next day it had springboard back, it's what's called the rebound effect. I'm like, I'd still be like, fuck, that was nice. Those few hours where I, I didn't have to feel that anxiety as much. So I drank like a lot of kids do a lot of binge drinking as teenagers. Um, I took my first ecstasy tablet when I was 20 on my 20th birthday. And that really changed everything for me. I mean, I took that tablet and it was what drinking was giving me times a hundred, you know, all of a sudden yeah. I felt completely comfortable in my own skin. I felt like I didn't have to worry or be anxious about what was going on around me. And, you know, it always, it confused me back then, but it makes so much sense now. Like I would start to go out pretty much every weekend taking ecstasy and speed. And I would have mates that I'd go out with and they'd go out, they'd take a couple of pills and then they'd have some fun and then wouldn't really think about it for a few months and then maybe do it again when it was someone's birthday. Whereas that from the moment I took that first tablet, I was like, I'm going to do this as much as possible for the foreseeable future because, and, and that was so weird to me because I'm like, we're taking the same drug yet it seems to be having this different effect. But the truth is we're starting at a different baseline. So if I'm at this baseline where I don't feel comfortable in myself at all and I'm riddled with anxiety and then that completely goes away, I'm going to be more inclined to want to keep going back to that same behavior, okay, because it's solving more of a problem. Whereas if my friends, they were pretty, they were pretty cool, like pretty, you know, good, everyone's got their challenges, but, you know, they would feel, have a bit of a high, have a good night and then have to deal with the come down and they were pretty happy back at their normal life after that. That's why they wouldn't think about it um, for a few months or that kind of thing at a time. So uh, that's why, yeah, I mean, drug addiction isn't so much about the drug, <laughs> which is what a lot of yeah. people think. It's about what it's what problem it's solving for us. So I started, that, there you go. Uh, and that was where I was going to say, that, like I've seen some of your videos, obviously, Um and then it isn't about the addiction. It isn't about the drug itself. It's about the way you feel and the feelings that you escape. Ultimately, it's not, it's not the actual drug itself. Yeah, I mean, there was studies done in the 50s with re which really sent us off on the wrong path when it comes to addiction because they would put rats in a cage and then give them the option of taking normal water or drugged water. So water laced with heroin or cocaine and the rats would just use the drugged water until they overdosed and eventually killed themselves. So then the hypothesis from that was, okay, so there's some chemical hook in the drug. So after a certain amount, it might be one time, two times, three times, but then the hook's in and that person's then addicted and, you know, it's it's all so that's why the rehab industry was based on taking people out of their environment and taking them away from the drug, getting them physically clean 
So all of a sudden, okay, that the, the drug's out of their system completely and now they'll go back to life. Well, about 90% of people relapse <laughs> after that. Yeah. So there's something yeah. missing here because it's one thing stopping, but it's staying stopped. It's like that there's something that led us there in the first place. Like a lot of people come in um, to see me for the first time. And they're like, fuck, I just, I just want to go back to the way I was. And I'm like, nah, nah, you don't want to do that. Because <laughs> the yeah, way you were, yeah. there was obviously <laughs> enough shit going on that led you to becoming a drug addict or to getting hard depression or anxiety or whatever it was. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to understand that, you know, like there was experiments done in the 70s. There's a really famous one called Rat Park because a doctor, Bruce Alexander, came along and he looked at this these experiments from the 50s and he scratched his head. He's like, okay, I see what's happened here, but this rat's in a fucking cage. Like yeah. if, I, if I was in a steel cage with nothing else to do except drink water or drug water, I'd drink drug water too. <laughs> There's yeah. like literally nothing yeah. else to do. So he created a uh, what he called Rat Park, which was a uh, heaven for rats. So basically instead of just a steel cage, he was uh, there was a big, you know, complex, whatever it was. There was tunnels to run through, little wheels to run on. There was other rats to bond with and have sex with. There was just all stuff to do. They could socialize, right? Same experiment, normal water, drugged water, but different environment. And so in that experiment, a, f- a few dr- uh, rats tried the drugged water. None of them got addicted. None of them overdosed and none of them died. Okay. So he's changed the environment. Now, the thing where rats and humans are a bit different is that when a rat leaves a, a pretty barren standard cage and goes to rat park, the rats generally like, sweet, I'm in rat park. This is awesome. There's other rats. Well, there's female rats over there. Let's go talk to them, right? Yeah. Humans, you can take a human out of a cage and they might physically be out of a cage, but psychologically they're still there. And this is where, you know, different trauma and emotional baggage and all that stuff comes in because we live so much up here. And if we have unresolved stuff here, then our environment change can help a little bit. But unless we deal with the stuff from our past, we tend to keep going back to behaviors because a lot of people will say to me, I just need to get out of Melbourne. You know, I'll just, I'll just go to live in Perth or I'll go live in Queensland. And I'm like, you're still going to be there <laughs> wherever you go. Yeah. You're there. And um, so many people I know, especially with drugs, they've moved States and they've just, it's, it's amazing how resourceful you can be. You'll be able to find the drug dealers in a different state. Even if you know, no one like that, <laughs> because deep down, that's what you're seeking. Yeah, it's it's it, you're you're 100 right. It actually brought me back to a story where uh, I went on a trip, boys trip, and within 30 minutes, um, a drug dealer walked up and said, "Boys, do you want some drugs?" And we're like, "What the fuck?" He's like, oh, "I could just tell it's a boys trip. You're not from around here." But it's like, "Holy shit!" Like that. It, it is. It, that's how, it can be that easy for you if you if the problems aren't gone, you will find. Yeah. The adaption without which is, which is, without without getting too like woo woo and stuff. It's like when you're in that vibration, you'll find a vibrational match. Like mm-hmm. there, when I was a drug eighth man, even when I was, I would get clean for a period of time, but still hadn't addressed my stuff. Yeah, the the situations where I found myself in front of drugs, just like from a probability point of view, make no sense at all. Like yeah. I'm talking people pulling up in their car next to me and stopping, oh, do you want drugs? It's like, we don't even know you. Yeah. It's so <laughs> weird, right? And then, and then 
when I've kind of worked with addicts and they've said, like, how do you get around that stuff? And it's like, I, I haven't been approached or offered drugs in years, right? Yeah. Because it's like, once it gets this vibrational thing, when you're not in that frequency, you stop attracting things from that frequency. So now I don't know what it is, but I just, no one stops me or I don't find myself in front of people or someone, when I'm waiting for the train, no one comes up and goes, oh, you want any drugs? Because it's just, yeah. you know, I'm the same, I'm the same person physically, but things, certain things have been addressed. So it's like, that just doesn't get attracted anymore. Yeah. And there's definitely, there's definitely that you attract what is happening within you and around you. You are, people are drawn to you. And it's why I actually, and I guess I'll speak about this because I had a, I did a personal training group, which was all people with depression and anxiety. Now it was probably the worst thing I've ever done because I brought together people who were looking for people to blame and to just basically gather more excuses. And it, they just, it just attracted the wrong people. It was, and it was my messaging at the time as well. I, I don't, blame them it was my messaging at the time but at the time I attracted those people and I know when I'm in a much positive different light that you attract the people that are meant to sort of flow in and like obviously you're one of those people like as I sort of drifted through I understood you more and we had this connection and you just connect differently to other people and there's an instant something there it's like oh I see that person I'm going to talk to them and you don't know why, you just, you see something you like. Yeah, and you know, people have got to trust that. You know, it's like yeah. we need to trust that a lot more. And it, like you said, it does work both ways. You know, I see a lot of people who do start doing the work on themselves and be this, this I'm, I'm mainly talking drug circles again, but, you know, they'll start to do the work and start to raise themselves up. And then they don't want to start to look at their friendship circle. And it mm-hmm. kind of, and because they're like, oh, you know, I need, and I did this early on as well because all of a sudden I stopped using drugs and had this big healing experience and then naturally I'm like, I don't want to leave anyone behind. Let me go and help them. Um, and a lot of the time those people just aren't ready, even if they're our close yeah. friends. Yeah, it's not up to us when it's the time is right for them. We can't make it be the right time. And then the issue is if we go back into that environment, it's different frequencies. So all of a sudden it's no fun for us anymore. And, and we're trying, we're sort of getting pulled down. And if people don't realize that and step away, they can end up going into those old habits because they'll just try and match that, that same frequency again. Yeah. So through, um, I guess, the heavy drug taking years, um, was, I'm guessing it was years, um, what did that look like? Like from an outside perspective, but also your perspective, because you know I've got friends who have, been, have sort of been been through where you are, and some have been living in bins, some have been eating out of bins, some some have lived with their family the whole time and not known. Like it's it is very different for everyone. Yeah, yeah, everyone's there's similar themes, but the stories can look very different. I've gone through sort of many different stages or levels of it for a lot of the time for years you could basically say I was a functional addict so I was still holding down a job you know I was a tradie but there was times where I would binge and use heavily every weekend for there was one year I might have not done it for two or three weekends and obviously that has consequences in your life because I wouldn't sleep Friday through Monday. Um, Monday through Wednesday, I would be a complete zombie at work and barely able to function. Then I would start coming good by Thursday. Um, yeah. Then I, after a marriage breakup, um, I started 
you know, not working and using more heavily. It wasn't quite every day yet, but it was probably most of the days of the week. And then it wasn't until I started uh, seeing a girl who was a dealer and all of a sudden, because I would just use whatever drugs I had until they were finished and then crash. But this time there was was available. So I um yeah. I started using every day. So it sort of progressed. And, and the everyday stuff was like, mate, just – crazy it's a crazy chaotic lifestyle because what happened i i ran through whatever money i had uh in savings very quickly and then had to and now i had this habit that i had to support and that's where the 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 dealing came in and um a lot of people will will revert to stealing or whatever it is and it's just whatever they can do to keep that um habit at bay because you'd imagine we we used to escape all these demons and then when we stop the come down all these demons are there times 100 so we're just trying to avoid that state after a while of using every day like especially ice ice just wasn't doing anything anymore all it was doing was warding off the come down because yeah. um yeah. and we build up tolerance so fast you know like in the end i was smoking a gram a day which i tell some people and they're like that's you're lying you're full of shit because you can take when I started using ice, I would take half a point, which is one twentieth of that amount, and be awake for three days. Like, so to yeah. think you could take a gram a day is just intense. But this is what the body does. The body's just always trying to adapt, and um, so you need more and more and more. So, my literally my days consisted of using, buying, and selling drugs. That was it. Like that's this. It's it's a simple life, but it's not that simple. Yeah. You know. You know. I was I was living in a drug house because once again, I'm tr- I'm subconsciously trying to find people who are in a si- similar situation to me because I, I I I suppose as humans we want connection so badly, and it's better for me to hang out with other drug addicts, even if we'll end up fucking each other over and stealing from each other, than being yeah. a lot than being alone. Yeah. And um. Yeah. So so I found more drug addicts to hang out with. Uh, I was living in a house which was just a full drug house. Like people came and went all the time. No one really slept. Um, I was out on the road um, dealing drugs and uh, it was just craziness. Yeah, absolute chaotic lifestyle. And then, then this run-ins with the law. Um, the first time I was arrested was after a massive high-speed car chase um, through Baronia and Roeville and just just craziness. So the... the yeah, the stories will make for a good book or a movie one day. Yeah. But, but but basically, it's just it's just chaotic. So it's like, yeah, for years I was. It's like I was just trying to keep the damn the damn wall up, so keep everything at bay, so barely holding on. And then that would come out with excessive dress drinking and drug use on the weekends, but still just holding down a job and all that kind of jazz. But then after the marriage breakup, just the damn wall just burst, and then it became functional to an extent to just massively dysfunctional. And um, yeah, that's that's sort of where it got to. What changed? Why? What made you? Not what made you. What what impacted you enough to say enough's enough? This needs to change. What what was what happened? Yeah, there? it's like there's kind of a a point where you realise when I decided I wanted to get help, I still didn't feel like I could get past it. It's like I need to get help because you have this realization in the drug world. I'm going to end up in jail or dead, and it's so it's a stark realization. You're like, fuck! I just there's no other option now. That's just what's going to happen if I continue down this road. So I better get help. But yeah, I, I still had that realization. But I thought, you know, I'll seek help, but I'm not sure that I really do actually want to stop. I was lucky enough that when I did seek help, it was it was fairly quickly that I had this massive experience where I. Um, resolved a lot of my core trauma 
which led me to feeling, you know, a peace that I hadn't felt since I was a kid. So it's like this feeling that I was trying to get through drugs, I suddenly felt it naturally. And that's when the drugs no longer need to exist. Cause like, ah, I was, I was looking over here, but it was over here the whole time. But for me, it's like that there's a set of scales. Like early on when we use, there's a benefit and a drawback and the benefits really high because for me, like the anxiety was gone. I felt connected. I felt comfortable in my own skin. And yes, there would be a come down early on, but it was, the benefit was still way higher over the time. You just abuse and abuse and abuse. And like I said, ice wouldn't do anything for me anymore. It just keep the uh, come down away. And, um, yeah. and there's this moment where you realize there's literally no benefit from me continuing to use anymore. So you know that you have to stop. And that's, it's super scary when you kind of, that's the only way that you've known how to deal with your, yourself is to escape yourself. And it's like, now I'm, I can't really do that anymore because it doesn't work. What the hell am I going to do? But this is the point where a lot of people will start to self harm and look at suicide and that kind of things. Cause I mean, a lot of people who struggle with, suicidal thoughts and that kind of thing just drugs haven't really worked for or solved a problem so then suicidal thoughts become the the coping mechanism like drugs are a coping mechanism so a lot of people who do stop using tend to run into a lot of those issues as well so for me it was the realization there's no benefit anymore i'm going to end up in jail or dead i have to try and do something and then i consider myself very fortunate that i found something that was able to uh really help me fairly quickly and also, I was lucky to have support as well. Like, like during the, during the worst of it, I'd shut my close friends and family out because there's so much shame. Like, you have there's so much guilt and shame going on for a drug addict. Even though people might look from the outside and they look very selfish and they're doing everything for themselves and they're self-centered, that's all a, a front, a mask that we wear. We're just yeah. so full of shame. So for me, the shame was so much I couldn't even reach out and talk or answer the phone um, to mum and dad and my friends. But I was very, very lucky that when that moment came and I was able to reach out, they were all like, well, how can we help? They were on my doorstep within a couple of hours. It was amazing. And I guess before I go sort of back onto you, is that what you see with your clients now that quite often most of the time that once they reach out to their family and friends that there is that support network there? Um. I mean, not all not, the time. Not, not always. No, no. Like this is, it's, here's the thing. Most of the time, yes. And most of the time, friends and family are more understanding than what the person thinks. Okay. Because yeah. what happens that the person thinks, uh, if I reach out, I'm going to get this reaction, which might be judgment or whatever it is. Um, often the times it's not. Um, so I would say on the whole, mostly yes. But we also see cases of like, it breaks my heart. Like, literally families disowning sons and daughters because they use drugs because in their family, they've got this rule, you know, this rule and it brings shame on the family. Like, oh, it makes me cringe when people like I've met parents who were less worried about their son or daughter being a drug addict and more worried about how that would look to their friends. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so there's a lot of this stuff and I have seen families disown. A lot of people have come and they said, you know, for for the detox, can you go stay with family? They're like, I can't stay with family because they said I, I can't speak to them unless I'm off drugs and it's been five years or so and that's really sad to me. But that also comes from a lack of understanding about what addiction is. Um, so a lot of a lot of parents are of this old school mentality that it's a moral failing and poor choices. So just come back to us once you're making better choices, which is horseshit. Yeah, so hopefully some of those people might actually listen to this, but I, I don't know, when, when, I, when you probably mentioned drugs, they'll probably switch it off straight away. But 
if they are listening and wanting to try and understand, I mean, what is a drug addiction? In your, in your, well, it's I would say in your eyes, but it's a fact. Yeah, so drug, drug, drug addictions are coping mechanism for some deeper emotional pain that someone's going through. It's, it's emotional pain relief. Um, it's not a choice. If you've sat with someone through an addiction, you would realize they're not making a choice. It'll take everything that you have from your life. Um, the medic and the judicial system right now sees it as a choice. That's why drug addicts get punished for being the most in pain people in society. It drives me crazy. Um, <laughs> the medical system sees addiction as a disease. This is more humane. I mean, at least you can get treatment and be treated somewhat like a human being. Um, but once again, it's not a disease. For, for you, to, someone just to say, oh, it's a disease, it's a genetic thing, or it's a, uh, a chemical imbalance in the brain. Once again, you're just saying this is something that you're uh, tied to for the rest of your life. It's something you're going to struggle with forever. Um, you know, I've met people doing NA and AA, which I think is a fantastic free service that people should go to if it resonates. But I've met some people who are like, you know, I'm an addict um, clean for 13 years. And I'm like, you're fucking not a drug addict. You haven't used drugs in 13 years. Yeah, we can stop yeah. living our life this way. Like we can move past this stuff. So, um, yeah, addiction is a coping mechanism. Just like I, I see people come, have come into the clinic who are workaholics. So someone who is so anxious and they just need to work and they just they freak out unless they're doing 70 hours a week. Meanwhile, they're not present for their wife and their kids. They're hardly ever there socially. They're drinking half a bottle of Jack Daniels at night to go to sleep before getting up four hours later. And that person is rewarded by society because society says, and what a go-getter, how much money you make. Yeah. Are you, have you made junior vice president yet? I, I see I see them and the drug addict, and it's basically the same person. See, one person has found work, soothes their unease with being with themselves. Another person has found drugs. Yet the workaholic, as I said, gets praised. The drug addict gets stigmatized by society. Now, the stigma of a drug addict kind of reinforces this uh, this cycle that we're, that the drug addicts find themselves in. So we need compassion. You know, people say, oh, we'll just let drug addicts steal from us and all that kind of jazz. No, no stop, stop being black or white. It's just yeah. not that way. Yeah, <laughs> like we, I've just done a Families of Addicts course with my friend Matt Nettleton who went to rehab 17 times. And um, we created a resource for parents and families uh, of addicts. And a lot of it is this thing. It's like there's not – Set, setting boundaries is one thing. Having compassion for this loved one and understanding what they're going through is, is another thing. And you can have both. It can't. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, a lot of the time we have to understand that, and families hate hearing this, but the families play a part in it as well. Yep. And, and, yep. and it's just, that, that can be what is so challenging sometimes for them is that they don't want to blame themselves. But it's not about that. It's just about taking responsibility that – we've got a job to do together here yeah. instead of me versus you, you versus, or you, you've got to do this. I'm going to do it. It's about going, we're going to do this as a team. Exactly. Yeah. It's this, this whole idea that, okay, here's the family and this one person, they have the problem and they need to fix that. Yeah. And even the word fix, like it's, yeah, it's, it's, shocking it, word. it's a shocking word because the, 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 the addict or anyone with a mental illness, the inner dialogue is I'm broken. Like I'm, yeah. I'm broken as a human. So when your family says, oh, you need to get fixed, it just reinforces this really bad dialogue that's happening inside. It's reinforcing this person uh, is a problem. Um, one of the – I did this seminar, and this is, the, this is how I hope the, the world's going to be moving. Um, this seminar about a year ago with my friend Holly Sinclair, 
talking about addiction and mental health and went through things, got to the end, and then this woman came up to me and she said, yeah, I came along today because my son, he's just, just been um, incarcerated. He's getting released though in a week or so and he's had this ice addiction and I wanted to come along and get some information. And so the next thing I expected because I've heard it a million times, I want him to come and see you because he needs to get fixed, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, she, she threw me off track in the most beautiful way ever. She said to me, she goes, I want to come and do your program and work on myself and my traumas and my patterns because I want to be the example for him and show him, you know, yeah. the way to go. And I was like, oh, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful, yeah. right? Because it's like it will, will own, own what you can in yourself and the byproduct of that is, you know, you're going to open the doors for the person you love to get help as well instead of trying to fix them. Yeah, uh, that's that's very powerful because um, I've got a couple of friends who they've got kids and um, they're like, you know, they feel like they're failures or whatnot. And I'm like, well, the kid's going to grow up with something wrong with him, no matter or them wrong with him, no matter what, because cause of the world we live in, that's the way we all adapt in different ways. It, it doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but I'm like, my advice is practice what you want them to practice. So if you... For example, if you want your daughter or son to grow up, you know, being vulnerable and open to you, be vulnerable and open yourself and show them that. Like, let them know that you're going to seek care counselor to speak about it. It doesn't, you don't need to be suicidal or depressed or whatever. It's like, I'm just going to speak to someone because I need to get a couple of things off my chest. When the kid sees that, they go, oh, I know I can speak to my parents if I feel shit basically. So that, I mean, that's one of my most, my biggest pieces of advice to parents because I'm not a parent. So not quite often they won't listen, but that's something that I want to make sure I'm getting as much help with as possible. So when I do bring kids into the world, they can just see this guy who's leading from the front so they can open up to me. Now I spoke about this with someone this morning. I've got 15 and 16 year old kids that open up to me already about this stuff. And I'm not even their parent. And I'm just like, why are they doing this? But it comes to that realisation that when you show vulnerability and openness yourself, they realise that not everything needs to be perfect and it's okay to feel shit. So they come to you and then they feel better after it's said and done. Yeah, I I could not agree more. That's exactly the advice we give to parents. It's like, so those kids that come to you, it's like you've given them permission to be open and vulnerable because they saw it first. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and once again, the parents, like so many, again, they have to let go of that story. Like, oh, what have I done wrong? How have I fucked up here? It's like w- whenever we're stuck with these stories that we have about an issue, we're not able to best deal with the problem at hand. Yeah. And also when it comes to addiction or mental illness, a lot of parents aren't educated around what it is. So they're coming from a place of fear. Yeah. So it's like they, they they want these scripts of like, what exactly do I say to my son or daughter? Like, what's the best thing? I'm like, it's less about what you say. It's where you're coming from. If you're coming into it with a place of fear or anger or frustration, it doesn't matter what you say. It's not going to be received the right way. But if you're coming from a place of understanding and a place of compassion, once again, it's less about what you actually say. It's going to be received in the right way. Yeah, 100%. Now, we, we could probably speak for for days we could we could <laughs> genuinely probably speak for days but we've probably only got about 10 minutes so um we i will talk briefly about the turnaround for you and where that's got you to now so you you went and was mal the first session you actually had 
with the therapist? Uh, yeah. Well, no, no. I'd done a, a couple like court-ordered programs and, and sessions, but not many. Yeah. No. So, but it was Mel that when things started to click for you, wasn't it? Yeah. Because she understood. She understood. Yeah. Like, like she'd, Mel, Mel, she'd had some drug stuff in the past, not to the extent of a hardcore addict, but I walked into her office and she sat me down and we spoke about drugs for like less than two minutes. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then the rest of the three hours that I was in her office was just about why, like what had happened to me that led me to that. Whereas when I'd spoken yeah. to other people, it's like, well, how many drugs have you taken? When was the last time you took them? When was the first time? It was just all surface level rubbish. And, and all drug addicts, we know that's not the problem. Yeah, so she showed me, said, yeah, well, this is why you're using drugs. You have all these emotions down here that you haven't dealt with in your life because you want everyone to like you and don't want to show any negative aspects of you. We've got to bring those negative aspects out and actually integrate them for you to become a whole human and not need to escape anymore. And I'm like, that makes, I've never heard anything like that before, but that makes complete fucking sense to me on some level. I was like, yes, that's what we need to do. And you're pretty, you're pretty scrambled at that time still anyway. So like for something, I guess, to resonate with you while everything's, I guess, all over the place would really hit you even more that, oh, hang on a minute, this is, this is where I need to be right now. Yeah. What was that Scram- process like? Scrambled was an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's many, many words we could have used. Um, what was the next process like for you? For me, um, and everyone's everyone's journey is different, but like straight away, once I had accessed some of the deep issues from my past, um, the two main ones was that vulnerability one. So like once I shifted that, um, I started crying like you would not believe because here's the thing, before the, then, I didn't cry like possibly 15 years, I don't think. Mm. Um, I did not shed a tear. Because if I believe I can't be vulnerable in front of someone, I'm certainly as hell not going to fucking cry in front of them. So I'd suppressed tears, which are so fucking healthy and what we need to do that after that 15 years, I always say it's like one of those fire hydrants that breaks and just spurts out everywhere. (laughs) There's kids dancing under it. Um, I was bald and it was just such a giant relief for me to be able to cry like that. And um, after doing that, we went back and – uncovered the belief that I didn't love myself, that I not only didn't love myself, I fucking hated myself because I thought there was something wrong with me. And once we were able to resolve that, that's when I suddenly felt this, you know, waves of peace or love. Like, I don't know, whatever you want to say, it's a bit corny, whatever you want to call it, I just all of a sudden felt at ease in myself. So I, I just had this real moment where I was like, ah, I don't need drugs anymore. So for me... Yeah. I left that session and spent the next sort of day and a half completely cutting ties with everyone from that scene. So I, you know, broke up with the girl I was dating. I went and told everyone that, you know, owed me money. You don't owe me money anymore. Don't worry about it. You're not going to see me for a while. I sort of got all my affairs in order um, and then slept for four days, which is what happens when you're coming (laughs) off ice. Um, Then then woke up from that four-day comatose and I was like, all right, this is, you know, 
chapter chapter two of life starts now and i started getting very curious because I, I obviously unpacked these couple of things that were very impactful but i was now like well what else have i got going on in here that i maybe wasn't aware of before so i just kept peeling back the layers trying to understand myself more and more and become more whole as a human and and from there it was just in that process that I had the vision, like I want to open up a place and help people one day. Not sure what that'll look like. And um, I, I went down and started studying the traditional route because I'm like, I need a bit of paper to do this um, properly, which is just a belief I had back then. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I was doing a diploma in mental health and AOD. Uh, I saw the work that I was had done with Melissa to be much more powerful than that. This is my personal opinion. So I went back to her and said, look, teach me everything that you know. Um, teach me. Don't know how long it's going to take or what I have to do, but I'm up for the challenge because this is how yeah. I want to help people and that's how it all started. And uh, from there, what – I mean, you, you did you, – Melissa taught you everything you know and you – she, I've seen her video, so she won't, she won't care listening to this. But you are definitely the, the you go the, down the science path a lot, where she's not as sciencey. Um, so you have, out of this one session, I guess you have taken. It's been, it was that much, that powerful for you. It's significantly changed your life. I mean, you did more work after, but by just stepping into this one session, it it changed your life. Yes, and what. I guess where are you at now with your business and life and stuff like this? Because you were at a point where, as you said, it was jail or death, mm. but it isn't now. Where is it? Um, well, I'm in Thailand at the minute. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so 33 so, degrees in Thailand. So, it's 15 in <laughs> So we um, – Mel got to the point where she said, I've taught you everything that I know. And I said, sweet, I'm going to open up this center to help people who are in my situation. And that kind of got her a bit fired up as well. She said, if I can help you in any way, let me know. And I said, why don't we do it together? So we started the Center for Healing at the start of 2016. And um, we spent yeah just under four years uh, helping people. We had trained up other girls as therapists. We had kinesiologists, we had staff there and everything, and we're helping people with mental illness and, and addictions. Um, my little boy came along November of 2018. Um, that- now, I'll, I'll, stop, I'll stop you there. Yep. How was that? How was that moment when you got your son? Um, because you probably would have never have thought that that would be happen when you're going through it. Yeah, it was interesting. So I will – part of my addiction, which was – yeah, there's a long list, but one of them was the girl I was dating. I got her pregnant and we had to have an abortion and it was a pretty late one And um, because we were both complete drug addicts. I can't bring a baby into the world. And um, it was interesting because, you know, I'm 36 now. When I stopped taking drugs, I I think I was 31, always part of me knew I wanted to be a dad. I just, I was this, this thing in me. I'm like, I just couldn't wait to be a dad one day. And for whatever reason, it wasn't the right time, probably because I was a fucking mess. But yeah, um, yeah. when when we uh, had to have uh, that abortion when I was a drug addict, and there was part of me going, maybe this is it, mate. Maybe you're never going to be a dad because I, I couldn't look after myself at that point, let alone another human. Um, so yeah, when 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 Tommy came along, uh, 2018, it was really when we found out that we were pregnant was just a uh, a very humbling moment, um, a moment where you feel very lucky 
that after all that's happened, you do get to experience this. And he's, you know, an amazing kid. He's only very fresh, but uh, he, he's yeah. awesome. So yeah, it is. It's it, it was a very, uh, yeah, special moment. It was one of those moments where you're not like high fiving, jumping around, excited. It was one of those. I found this in life. I've had many moments where I'm pumped and excited and high fiving everyone. The real moments to me are when something happens and you're very quiet and you just feel yeah. very, very humble for the experience that we're having here on this dimension. So, yeah. So, but since he came along, we kind of reevaluated things and um, he became number one. So we wanted to have a bit more of a balance with our lifestyle. So that's when we decided to um, shift our business online. It was before even the coronavirus shit that we decided. (laughs) Um, But um, that was at the end of last year and decided to do the practitioner trainings and train people up around the world in the method and um, do a bit of travel with him. So, yeah, we are. yeah, on Coast Amelia at the minute, we're seeing people for sessions online and doing the practitioner trainings and that kind of thing. So things have changed a little bit. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I've done that many sessions and so is Melissa with people who go back to the core of a lot of their issues and they're like, yeah, dad just worked all the time and he was never at home. I just wanted him to be at home. So I'm like, yeah. I can't be that guy. Like, I've done this too many times. I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, for, for, me, for me, it was around finding balance and being. Both me and Melissa are very active in in Tommy's formative years. Yeah, and I uh, I've seen that in the last uh, couple of months, and I think I was I was probably your last client last year, wasn't I? Face to face client. You were. I was. So hell, I was very very lucky. I uh, I went, I, I went, out, went I, out with a bang, Shano. You did. You did. You uh, you definitely swiped me, and I think it was um really important in my in my ongoing I guess health mental health and physical health like it's changed this this i guess modality has changed my life a lot just going back and retracing a lot of the trauma um which as you said earlier is you look back and you're like oh that's weird that's stupid that's weird but once you actually get understand the emotion that was attached to it it's it's completely different yeah it's it's like whoa okay i can i can get that and i always explain to people i think the simplest way is if you get lost in the shops now, you look back and you're like, oh, you only got lost in the shops, you found your parents. But for that four-year-old or five-year-old kid getting lost in the shops is, I'm going to be alone forever. It's it's so, I guess, so much bigger for a little kid than it is. So you, you carry that emotion right through. So you have, to, you have Just, to go back and be the kid again to understand that. Yeah, which is very hard. And a lot of people don't want to do that. And that's, that's a weird as... Um, professionals we both have to respect that and we we do um i guess one last thing before you do go is um what are your goals in in the short term or are you basically i mean at the moment with coronavirus it's probably uh everything's changing day by day so i mean what does it look like for you for you and and mel like um you're doing you're continually just doing your online practitioner course are you teaching me and others how to do what you do yeah i mean at the minute like honestly it's getting really basic right now like i'm just trying to focus on being the best dad i can but also uh working on myself so i'm just trying to use this time as reflection time as well um a lot of people will use this time in isolation to develop a drinking problem or um online shopping addiction or something like that (laughs) um i i I want to try and use it to reflect a lot on my life and you know because there's always stuff to work on the amount of shit i've worked on um in the past you had me in tears an hour ago 
um, yeah. something when I was seven. So it's like we're, we're, we've always got stuff to work on. There's no kind of end point with that. We just get more and more uh, towards our, our true self. So right now it's that. Uh, yes, the practitioner training, um, it's like – our enrollments opened on March the 15th till the April the 15th, which is like the worst fucking time because that's when everything happened. Yeah. <laughs> but pe- people, have got it, people have got it much worse. Um, but we're just trying to focus now on doing some good content, getting that out to people and um, trying to inspire. And then, um, you know, the business stuff will work itself out, the financial stuff. I mean, we just want uh, everyone to be to be safe and happy and healthy. So right now for me, it's, it's a very much Tommy, Mel, myself, and um, make good content. One final thing, advice for anyone else that might be struggling through the grips of addiction um, or adaption, I like to say. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, no, um, just if you've probably heard this before, but you're not alone, um, try and get stories in front of you who've, of people who've overcome what you have. Um, we, when we're struggling with something, be it addiction or depression or whatever it is, we feel very alone. We feel like we're the only one going through it. We feel like we're broken and the rest of the world's fine. That's not the case. The rest of the world isn't fine. <laughs> and um, yeah. you're, not, you're, you're not alone. There's been many, 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 many people who have um, overcome stuff. Uh, that's why, you know, pe- people who I know have, got a loved one struggling with ice addiction they'll just chuck my story in front of them and i'm i'm so honored that that gets to inspire because all of a sudden people believe they're like hang on this guy or this girl they seem just like me and and they got past it so all of a sudden there's no hope to hope which is the most we won't try and seek help or get past it if we feel like there's no hope if we feel there's no hope we're closed at least getting the stories in front of someone who's overcome and starts to open us up a bit and from there we can um, offer support and help Thanks for listening to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. If anything in this podcast has brought up difficult feelings, please call Lifeline on 13-1144. For any further information or if you want to bring your story to life, contact Shane at shane at vitalityfit.com.au. That's V-I-T-A-L-I-T-Y-F-I-T-T dot com dot A-U.